When we arrive at Nehemiah chapter 2, the cupbearer Nehemiah has felt the full weight of the burden on his heart. These last four months have been a whirlwind for sure. He, he's, it seemed like probably a lifetime ago that Hanini and other Jews had come to give him news of the state of Jerusalem. He spent hours upon hours, days, weeks on the floor, on his knees before God, begging him for mercy, repenting of sin, asking him to empower the work that needed to be done. And now those prayers are going to be translated into action. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1 says, In the month of Nisan, uh, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I like the fact that uh, he he got the king in a good mood before he attempted this, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, oh, by the way, uh, you don't come in the king's presence sad-faced. The king is the king. You got to put on a happy face before you go see the king. You don't come disheveled with your hair undone, with some lounging around clothes on. This is the king. You prepare yourself to come into his presence. And so now that the king has noticed that Nehemiah is sad, Nehemiah starts to get afraid because if the king is displeased, well, that's when heads start coming off. That, that's when bad things start happening. So he is very much afraid. And I said to the king, verse 3, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? In other words, he doesn't say, I'll tell you one thing, king. He presents the burden on his heart before the king. And notice the king's response, verse 4, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Exactly what do you want from me? And Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Now you just spent the last four months praying, Nehemiah. You know what this prayer is? God help me. You know, you know that, that prayer that like you're about to do something. It's been on your heart. You're ready to do it. But now the situation comes up and the full weight of the gravity of the situation is sitting on your back. And now you're saying, oh, God, I need help. Please help me. That's what that prayer was. I doubt it was more than 10 words. In fact, I'm pretty sure it had some, it was very close to God help me. Because at this moment, he knows he needs God's hand. Verse 5, then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, I could almost see the king and the queen looking at each other, not even talking, just just giving each other a glance. And from the glance, from the glance, the two know exactly what's going to happen. How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. 
Nehemiah talks about his plans with the king. Sounds good to the king. And he's pleased. He says, very well, go. Now, Nehemiah could have stopped there. He could have just gotten out of the king's presence, bowed his way out. You know, all the normal uh, uh, king's court kind of uh, things you do. But he doesn't. Look at verse 6. And the king said to me, uh, excuse me, verse 7. And, the, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. Go, king, if I may ask another thing. These rulers, these governors, I want to make sure that they know that I have your authority. So will you please grant me letters stating such? And, not only that, he also says, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. That's a Hebrew name. That he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what was asked, what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now the king's cupbearer is on his way. He's on his way home. It's not a home he's ever been to. He's lived in Susa probably his entire life. If not directly in Susa, he's definitely lived in Persia. But he's still coming home. He had boldly, though cautiously, brought his request to the king, and the king has given him the go-ahead. He has his papers in hand, papers that show that the king's commission is on this project. Those papers grant him the right of passage to Jerusalem, the materials he needed to get the work done. He couldn't believe how generous the king was. I guess the wine really worked, huh? (laughs) As the cupbearer turned general contractor entered the city, I imagine a little bit of the reality struck him. He had, he had seen God's hand in the authorization right at the end of verse 8. For the good hand of my God was upon me. And if, by the way, if you're going to do any kind of plan, if you're going to enact any sort of scheme or plan that you're going to try to do something, you better make sure the hand of God is on you as you go. You better make sure that you're doing his plan because as Psalm 33 reminds us, God is the one who wrecks our bad plans and establishes his own good plans. So we better make sure that our plan matches up with God's plan, not not trying to make his match with ours. I was talking to someone the other day, and they're going through a divorce. Um, They asked what I was going to preach this morning, and I was telling them about the series in Nehemiah uh, and, and how I titled the series Rebuild because of this focus in Nehemiah on taking what has been broken down, what has been ruined, what is is a pile of rubble and ashes, and rebuilding something glorious for God in that process. And this person said, I guess I need to hear that kind of message. She's right. She's standing over a lot of rubble. Bad family situation resulting from divorces. It's Unfortunately, it's a common story. Put it mildly, she needs to know how to rebuild her life. But then again, don't we all? I mean, really, don't we all have rubble? 
Don't we all have devastation and ruin at some point? Maybe, maybe it's not a, a marriage problem. We all have our burned gates, our shattered glass, our broken walls. We all have shells of a former life that seem to be good, but now are falling apart. Maybe you don't have that situation right now. You've had it before, though, haven't you? Haven't you? Yeah. And I hate to tell you this, but you'll probably face it again. I think of uh, someone whose children, maybe they're grown, maybe they're still at home, but they're sowing their wild oats. What starts as an attempt to win them back ends up ending in a shouting match where nobody wins or a door slamming contest. What about the person whose spouse or family member that they've spent years caring for has just died? Some of y'all have been through that recently. Some of you have been through that not quite so recently. We've got lots of members in this church that have gone through that ordeal. I think of someone who's in rehab again. They've, They've tried many times before. Each time saying that this will be the one. This will be the time that I'm serious about it. But yet that old habit keeps coming back. And it's got a whole lot more fight than that person does. Then again, maybe the rubble isn't bad, so to speak. But it's just a new phase. I think of someone who's just retired. They're leaving their office for the last time. Box of the final stuff from their desk in their hands as they go. Looking back, wondering, what am I going to do now? That's a form of rubble, y'all. What about the person that has just recently gotten that diploma or degree and now is faced with a whole new life ahead of them? No more more pencils, no more books, no more teacher's dirty looks, right? What's going to happen now? Where do I go from here? when we find ourselves standing over the rubble, whether it's good rubble or bad rubble, feeling the burden of the need, it's time to take an honest look at the reality of the situation. It's time to assess the damage. When we get to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, and following, we, or verse 9 and following, we see that assessment of damage. And we find a couple of things that it really takes to make the right kind of assessment, to to really make sure that we know how to move forward. Maybe you know God's plan on the big picture scale. Maybe you're like Moses and God says, you're going to bring my people out of Egypt, right? He gets the end right up front. God says, you're going to go in, you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Pharaoh's going to say no, so I'm going to do mighty works and you're going to lead them out. And to prove to you that's the case, you are going to bring the Israelites back to this same mountain. I wonder if Moses was at the burning bush receiving the Ten Commandments. I wonder if it's that same spot that he met God again, bringing the Israelites into the desert after the Exodus. I, I, just, I just wonder, maybe, maybe he was right by that bush that he was at years before, months before. I I just, curiosity wants to know. But maybe you're not like Moses. Maybe he doesn't just say, all right, this is the grand scheme. This is everything that's going to happen. We know in Revelation, Jesus wins in the end. 
But Revelation is really confusing until that point. Like there's all kinds of stuff going on. And we got no clue in many of the cases exactly what God's saying. His, his plan is just so much beyond our understanding. Maybe you're in that kind of a situation where you don't even, even if God showed you what was going to happen, you wouldn't have a clue anyway because it would just be too marvelous, too wonderful, too scary, terrifying, too unbelievable. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you are, maybe you're in that situation where if God would just tell me what he wants me to do, I'll do it. Just tell me. Wherever you happen to be, there's a point where you have to assess the damage, where you have to take a good, long, hard look at where you are and prayerfully ask God to guide you on how to get where you are to where you need to be. And I find a couple of things in in this passage in Nehemiah that, that help us to know how to make a good assessment of the damage. The first thing that I find is that assessing the damage requires time. Let me explain what I mean. I do not mean that you can take your time, but it does take time, okay? There's a difference here. Taking your time is just sitting around being lazy until God shows it to you. Taking your time is being reactive instead of proactive. Taking your time is, is... just saying, well, it'll all eventually work out. I don't really have to do anything. That's not what I'm saying here. To assess the damage, you've got to be actively involved, but you can't do it fast. It's going to take time. Let me show you where I see this in the passage. It's in verse 11. So Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Now, why was he in Jerusalem three days before he does anything? I mean, it does seem like a large amount of time in the grand scheme of things. Well, I'll give you one reason. He just came from Susa. Y'all ever been on a long trip? Anybody go on vacation and you get back the day before you got to go back to work? Doesn't that stink? Because the next day you're still tired from the travel from the vacation. Some of, y- some of y'all don't know that. I don't know. If you're like me, you don't get on vacation very much. And so it's, so that's a, that's a luxury I don't always get. But some of you take cruises every other week, it seems. So I don't know. It's, you know, maybe you do know that. Um, I'm not, I'm not talking about anybody in particular, uh, George and Linda. Um, (laughs) But in all reality, though, have you ever been on vacation and you get back and you've got to do stuff right away and it's just like, You're tired just from the travel. You've had that situation happen before. Well, I imagine the journey from Susa was pretty exhausting. It wouldn't have been, this wasn't a couple of hours of a car ride. If you go from Susa, uh, where Susa was, to Jerusalem now, it'd take you a good while in the car. They weren't going by car. It took a while to do this journey. He needed rest. Oftentimes, I find that God is it has us in a situation where, you know, on the one hand, we are working against the clock, but on the other hand, we need to rest so we can do our best work. So this is one part of that time. Part of the time sometimes is the time to take a breath so that you can make a good, honest assessment 
Any, if you've ever been in an emotionally stressful situation and having to make a decision on the fly, it is so hard. But it seems like if you take a few minutes, you step back, you get out of the emotion of it, the picture becomes a lot clearer. There's, there's something else happening too. He has this deadline from the king. Remember back in verse 6? Verse 6, uh, why did the king let him go? Because he gave the king a time. He said, this is the time frame. I'm going to go there and I'm going to do the work. It's going to take about this long and then I'm coming back. Now, if you read the book of Nehemiah, you'll realize he was there for more than a decade. It's estimated somewhere in the uh, uh, 12 to 15 year range. Nehemiah is in Jerusalem. Now, the wall only is going to take 52 days. 52 days, okay? Less than two months. So there's a whole lot more to Nehemiah's commission than just this wall. But he realizes very quickly, he's against the clock, but he's got to take the right amount of time to make sure this project's done right. And he did a pretty good job because uh, this wall was built in 445 B.C. Parts of it still stand today. You can actually go to Jerusalem and see them. In fact, there's one spot of Jerusalem that you can see like seven or eight different fortifications all in one view. Like you can see the bases of some of the old walls. You can see you can see part of the rubble from where Hezekiah's wall was destroyed by the Babylonians. You can see Nehemiah's wall on top of that. You can see the top surface of later fortifications that were added on. You can see all, all that stuff all in one view. It's, it's pretty amazing. So he did, apparently he did a pretty good job. Oftentimes, though, oftentimes God works through time. I mean, how long had he been praying? Four months. Shouldn't God have revealed it all by now? That's not how God works. I just mentioned Moses. You know what constantly happens in the book of Exodus? God keeps telling Moses, okay, here's the next step. Go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go. When he says no, do this. Pick up your staff, hit the Nile, turn it into blood. Uh, uh, take, take some ashes in your hand, throw it up in the air, and it'll become boils. Warn him. This is what's going to happen. When he sends the plague of hell, Moses actually warns Pharaoh, hey, if you care about your livestock and your servants, you better get them in from the fields because it's about to come down. Sure enough, here it comes. But each and every step of the way, God is telling him, all right, here's the next step. It reminds me of, uh, of a famous verse, a verse you probably, many of you probably learned as a kid. Psalm 119, 109. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Right? God just constantly showing the way to walk. Now, we think of that, and we think of the one million candela flash bulb, the light bulbs that, that, that people put on their trucks when they go hunting in the woods. Like, the ones that you can't stare at directly. You have to kind of like, yeah. We think of stuff like that. That's not the lamp he's talking about. Imagine a genie lamp, but smaller, handheld, okay? About this size with a little bit of oil and a little bit of a spout where the wick comes up and, and it's burning light. You know how much light that thing puts out? Maybe enough for two steps. 
I mean, you see right in front of you. That's about it. You can see enough to get to uh, 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 a certain spot in the house if you're trying to. You can see just in front of you, just enough to take the next step. When he's saying this, what, what the psalmist is saying is, your word gives me the next step. It doesn't always give us uh, the next 15 steps. It doesn't always give us the grand scheme of things. Oftentimes, God works by just showing you the next right thing to do, and that's what he does with Nehemiah. That's why this process takes time, because oftentimes, God is waiting for your obedience before he can lead you in the next step. So it requires time. That's how God's working in Nehemiah's life. No wonder he waits. He's waiting for further instructions. Yeah, sure, he's catching up on his sleep, adjusting to the time change. I don't know if you can get jet lag on a donkey. A little bit different climate. It's definitely elevated in Jerusalem. I think Susa is a lot closer to sea level. So there's some adjustment. But in that whole time, he's waiting for further instructions. God, what am I going to do now? Like the next step for me. It takes time. By the way, if you're one of those types of people, um, if you're one of those types of people that God can can give you a vision of something and 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 you can turn it into reality, that, that's an incredible gift. Please see me, because I need help with that. Don't we all? Assessing the damage requires time. Now, it doesn't mean you can be lazy. You still act with urgency. You just got to get, you just got to figure out. You need enough time to know what the right thing to do is and the right way to go about it. And God will give that to you. Second thing, and, and really part of the way he gives it to you is the second thing. Not only does it require time, but assessing the damage requires discernment. Notice I don't say wisdom. I say discernment. Because sometimes there are multiple wise ways, but only one way that will work. Discernment is this ability to take wisdom, general wisdom, and to apply it to a particular situation such that the perfect outcome is the one reached. Not just a good one, not just a, not just the, but the best, okay? That's discernment. Discernment is the difference between someone saying, okay, I know what's happening. Someone else saying, I know what's happening and I know why it's happening. And someone else saying, I know what's happening. I know why it's happening and I know what to do about it. It's not just knowing what's going on and even why it matters, but how to respond. See, it just keeps getting sharper and sharper and sharper. I think of it like a knife. Um, those two edges on either side, um, they're not very far apart. That angle is pretty small. 15 degrees, 20 degrees, something like that on most knives. Kitchen knives. Some knives are even smaller than that. I can't even, like... Some have a very, very, very sharp blade because they're so finely ground at such a small angle. 
Discernment is like that. It's like that, that, that blade that just is enough to make that, make that edge razor sharp. I see the discernment in verse 12. Then I rose in the night and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart for, to do for Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't, he doesn't. Okay, first of all, he goes at night. And then he doesn't tell anybody what he's doing there. You notice that? And then he, he goes into, there was no animal with me but the one I wrote on. All of this is adding up to him keeping a secret. Why is it secretive? Why, why, does he, why does he go about stealthily with this? Why isn't he out telling everybody? I mean, some of us, once we got the letters to the king, we'd have been out yelling it the whole way. I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Let me through. I got to rebuild the walls. Move aside, buddy. I got a letter from the king. I'm rebuilding Jerusalem. Why doesn't he do that? First of all, um, his calling wasn't to brag about what he was going to do. His calling was to do it. Then look at 16. Look at, look at, look at verse 16 too. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. He doesn't tell the priests. He doesn't tell the nobles. He doesn't tell Jews. He doesn't tell the officials. He doesn't tell anybody what's going to happen. Those few men that are with him, I don't know who they are. Perhaps it's some of the men that came to give him news. Maybe it's Hanini. And some other Jews that were with him. Maybe it's some folks uh, uh, that were sent with him by the king. Some men to help advise him and, and help him get the work done. Perhaps Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, is among the men so that he can make assessment of what types of things they need and what kind of wood to provide. I, I don't know who the men are, but whoever they are, they're few, they're at night, they're not walking around with a whole bunch of animals because that'd make too much noise. And nobody else knows where they're going or what they're doing. Why? Why the secret, Nehemiah? I think, I think that answer is in verse 10. I think they don't tell anybody because they know what's going to happen. Look at verse 10. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this it displeased them greatly that someone had come and and may i may i just um interject this into the scripture someone would dare to come to seek the welfare of the people of israel you know why they don't tell anybody opposition oh we'll get to opposition next week he knew once word got out so would the opposition. He doesn't tell the officials or the people, the Jews or the priests, because he knew the opposition would deter them. He was discerning enough to see that this project, if it's going to be successful, we've got to be able to handle those who would come against us. There are obstacles in every project. There are problems that come up in every single project. And oftentimes that obstacle comes in the form of people. People who don't like it. People who don't want change. People who are looking after their own interest instead of God's. We happen to be pilgrims on this earth. We are pilgrims. Pilgrims don't have a permanent home. 
pilgrims don't have the luxury of majority numbers. We are pilgrims. So if we're actually going to be pilgrims, we better know that we're going to face opposition. So it requires discernment. He knows before the opposition rises, he has to plant this burden, this vision in people's hearts first. He's got to get it in there first. It's like it's like um it's like planting. You got plants you want to plant. You got seeds you want to plant. You prepare the soil, you put it in, and then you grow the plant, right? You don't put the plant in and then prepare the soil. You might fertilize the soil, you might boost the nutrients in the soil, but you do your preparation work first, right? He knows that before these people pick up a brick, before they hewn out one stone, they've got to be ready for the task at hand. That's discernment. He knows people well enough to know, I've got to get to them first. And so he doesn't share. I imagine those letters were very vague. He doesn't say, it doesn't say on that letter from the king that Nehemiah is being sent to rebuild a wall. I imagine it probably said something like, I'm sending Nehemiah to execute my authority in Jerusalem. It's probably very vague, very wide. Nehemiah doesn't want them to know until the time is right. He's discerning. There will come a time, but not tonight. Tonight, Nehemiah has a more pressing job. He's got to assess the damage firsthand. He's heard about it, and he's got to go see it for himself. And that's going to require something that may be even harder. It's hard to wait when there's a burden on your heart. It's hard to let time uh, uh, move as it needs to move. It's hard to do that. You just want to jump in and do it. It's hard to be discerning. I mean, who, who can be discerning on their own? That takes God's work in you, right? But perhaps, perhaps the hardest one of all, assessing the damage requires honesty. It's not the way things should be. It's not the way you'd like things to be. It's the way they are. And you've got to be willing to take an honest assessment of what really is. Not just what you want, not just what you'd like to see, not just what you heard or what you think is true. What's the reality? Because until you do that, none of the rest matters. Without an honest assessment of what is going on, without walking the walls and seeing what really needs to be done, Nehemiah doesn't have a clue how to get anybody else involved. But once he sees the real need, he can point to that and say, right here, this is it. Do you see how it's like this? We don't even have to rebuild. All we've got to do is take these stones up and put them together. And it doesn't matter if they fit perfectly. We'll find some rubble and some mortar to stick in there to shore it up. Don't worry about that. Hey, over here, we don't even need that much work. Look how big that hill is. All we need is a few feet. It doesn't have to be too high. Now up here, where the temple is, oh my, we need a lot of fortification up here. 
We really need to muster our efforts here. But, but down there, no, no, that's not so bad. Hey, look, here's a section of the wall that's pretty smooth from Hezekiah's time. We can just build on top of that. Oh, man. You see that pile of rubble? There's nothing usable in there. We're going to need to clear all that out first. How long is this wall? Let's see. Uh, probably looks like five, six thousand cubits, maybe. Let's, uh, how many people we need to work on that? How big, of a, how big of a section can a family do? And how are we going to get them to talk to each other? He's making an honest assessment. This, this is how the Bible puts it. Uh, verse 13, I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. Yes, it was called the dung gate. It's where they took all the trash. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. He realizes, I can't even get in there on this animal. I got to get off. He doesn't specify what animal. But it it can't get through. He's got to actually get down and walk through himself. He's not looking from afar. He's not someone in an administration building way off in Susa saying, okay, well, Jerusalem needs a wall. Well, get me, get, me, uh, get me an architect to plan it out. He doesn't do that. No, he, he gets down on his, on his feet and walks, sees it with his own eyes, confers with these men throughout this time. Uh, the distance that he traveled well, it might help if we, if we saw it. Skip ahead to the picture. This is a model that was built by uh, two archaeologists. I think it's a husband and wife team or their family. They're the same. It's the same last name. Um, but they wrote. They built this model of Nehemiah's wall. This is the southern part of the wall. So if you were looking somewhere around here, would be the temple to the north. It's pretty much flat, but as you go down, this this valley along the side comes down this way. And so Nehemiah starts here at the valley gate. He goes all the way down to the dung gate, and then just above the dung gate is the fountain gate, and then he makes his way back. little over a 1,000 cubits one way. So if you're doing some math, that's about a little bit more than half a mile round trip all in this one night. And they are not racing. They are moving slowly so they can take a look at the damage and see everything for what it is. He's making an honest appraisal of the situation. He couldn't let the details take care of themselves. He had to work them out beforehand. That meant he couldn't just rely on second or third person accounts. He couldn't just assume that once the work began, the momentum would carry them to completion. Yeah, he'd have nuances and situations that would test his skills of leadership. Problems would arise. But to get everything together... Where is the best place for that gate? Should we put it here or should we move it down a bit? What, what, about, um, what about here versus there? Which one would work? Oh, we've got a problem with a little bit. We've got this like soft spot that wouldn't be very sturdy. Should we should we shift this over a little bit here or there, or should we 
devise something to kind of go over it. What about that river? I mean, you can't just build a wall straight into a river. Or straight over a river. How, how are we going to account for that? Why do we need more fortification? What's weaker to attack? Where, where can we get away with less? What's reusable from the area? Uh-oh, we got a couple families sick. How are we going to make sure the work continues? The coordination. Can you imagine trying... Anybody ever built something? Just anything. Small or big. Anybody ever know something that was built? <laughs> Come on now. Help me out. We, If you've ever known the general contractor, they don't spend a whole lot of time... Uh, building stuff. They spend a whole lot of time on the phone trying to get materials. And you got one with several sites? Man, they are spending all day on the phone trying to get materials. Trying to coordinate schedules, get the plumber out to this house that, that we're waiting on the plumber before we can put up sheetrock. Um, we've got, we've got to get the electrical done in now on this house. We're, we're waiting on that. Now, now we're pretty cleared up over here, but the painter's booked for the next two weeks. What are we going to do there? I mean, the coordination of getting all the efforts together and the materials all in the right places. Can you imagine a mile, mile and a half long wall with, I think it's um, 30, 40 different work sites along this wall? Can you imagine how much coordination that took? How are we going to... How, how is a cupbearer going to do all this? Well, it starts with assessing the damage. Find out what we need. And once we know what we need, once we've taken a good, hard look, once we've given time for all of this to really come about and to get all the information we need, to know how God is leading us to go, once we have the discernment, once he has given us the wisdom, and not only the wisdom, but the application of that wisdom so that, so that we can do it not only a way, but the right way, the best way. Once we've taken a good, honest look and we know exactly what we need, then and only then are we ready to build. If we are to do the work of God to clear the rubble, Whatever form that rubble is, it's going to take time. It's going to take discernment. It's going to take honesty. You may be now at a place of devastation. You're standing over the rubble and you need help. Take some time to assess the damage. Confess your sin. Maybe, maybe you've not trusted in Christ. Let God show you who he really is and who you really are. Look at discernment at your life. Let's see how you've turned your back on God. Make an honest assessment of that sin and then, then repent. Ask God to save you from it. If you've already done that, if you've already trusted Christ, Maybe it's time to make another assessment to seek God's will for you now. I'm going to be up here at the front. If you need someone to talk to, I'll be glad to talk to you. Jim, you come and lead us in an invitation. Let's pray. Father,
I, I, I pray that we would make, that we would take the time to make the assessment, that we would take the time to hear you, that you would give us discernment to see what we need to see, honesty to admit, and that that would draw us into your way of responding. Father, for those of us who don't trust you, I pray that they will learn that you are everything they need. For those that do, I pray that this time will be a time of commitment to doing your will, assessing the damage in their own life, and seeking your guidance as to where to go from here. Father, this is your time. You lead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.